so much for the excitement, the majesty, the incomparable glory of knowing you, of experiencing you, of understanding you, of receiving from you, of giving to you. So much, so much, all because of one man. Father, we pray that this class, as with all the ministries in this church, your ministry, your ministry, will be the class of the Holy Spirit, ministering and teaching and instructing, vivifying and invigorating and encouraging and empowering so that the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord. To your glory, Father, continue to do that, but continue it in an increasingly powerful and effective way. In Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. We're continuing to talk about the significance of the ascension, and I do think next week we're going to get into aspects of the ascension, but not yet. And I keep thinking, next week we're going to do this. And then I just feel led by the Spirit, hopefully I'm correct, to add something else to that. So you'll just have to bear with me. And for those of you who haven't been here long, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, beginning with the conception of Jesus all the way through. And I just want to say a few words that the Lord gave me this morning that are not in your material. The ascension of Jesus. And this is critical because typically, think about it now, think about it. Oh, I do want to do this class, the whole thing today, but I just feel, think about it. Think about the Christian calendar. Do you know what I mean by that? The events on the calendar that we celebrate, the big things, the big milestones, the big events of Jesus' life correct? Think about those. What is one of them? Somebody yell it out. What do we actually celebrate? Christmas. Okay, what else? Easter. What else? Pentecost sometimes, maybe, maybe not. Um, We do, but, you know, many churches do. So, Pentecost. What else? What else? What? Palm Sunday. What else? How many churches celebrate and make something about significant the ascension? In the preaching of the gospel, in the teaching of the ministry of the word. What are the biggies? And the shepherds were in the field. And Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by, the, by Satan. Perhaps in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. But then everything is working toward the crescendo, the cross. And then after the cross, the great resurrection, and we kind of stop. That's not God thinking. Because what we're doing 
we're categorizing. We're not emphasizing. We're not studying different aspects. We're actually categorizing activities and putting them into categories and making of these categories more or less significant activities in relation to the other categories. Do you, we get that? We're splitting up the comprehensive work of God into parts. We're not saying we should not because we have to understand and st study the various aspects. The ascension is the final aspect of the incarnational ministry of the Son of God to restore the Father's glory in His people. The ascension is the final aspect of the incarnational ministry of the Son of God to restore the Father's glory in His people. Now, if we don't get all this, you can listen to online, however you do. This means that we must, if we're going to look at it from the Father's perspective and from the heavenly reality, this means that we must view the entire incarnational ministry of Christ as one complete and comprehensive whole, W-H-O-L-E. We must look at the entire incarnational ministry of Christ as one complete and comprehensive whole. We must not make we must not make more of one event than another. No one event is more important than any other event in the incarnational life of Christ. We certainly can camp out at particular events to glean from them and have the Holy Spirit speak to us as to the significance of that event. But there is no event in the incarnational ministry of the Son of God that is more important or less important than any other event in His life. We cannot and we should not do that. This means that all of the events of Christ's incarnation are of equal value and are of equal necessity. Do we understand this? This means that the conception of Christ is the greatest event of God's self-giving. This means that the life of Christ is the greatest event of holy living. This means that the death of Christ is the greatest event of obedience. This means that the resurrection of Christ is the greatest victory. And this means that the ascension of Christ is the greatest goal. Now, looking at it this way, which event eclipses another event? Which one? And I said this before, and I'll say it again, because I think we must see this work of God's redemption differently than we have in the past. Because we do not want to say the cross is the greatest thing ever happened. No, it isn't. 
we must not say the conception of Jesus is the greatest event that ever happened. It isn't. The totality of all of it is the greatest event that ever happened as to its constituent activities. Is that wrong to say, therefore, to emphasize what happens at the cross? Of course not. Is it wrong to emphasize the significance of the resurrection, which we did for, what, two or three weeks? Of course not. Is it wrong to uh, elevate for a period of time to understand the significance of Gethsemane? Of course not. But what we don't want to do is to make one aspect of the incarnational life of Christ more important than another. And I'll say it this way, and I've said it before. If ever at any time Jesus disobeyed anything, the whole incarnational ministry of Christ is over. That means everything uh, is of equal comprehensive value. But there are landmarks within this entire life that stand out to us, and I believe to God. And so without the conception of Jesus, we wouldn't have anything. Without the, the temptation of Jesus, we wouldn't have anything. Without the life of Jesus, we wouldn't have anything. Without, and you go on all the way to the end. So I argue for, and I hopefully it's the Holy Spirit arguing for this. Let us not, as God's people, look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of Christ as bits and pieces. But let us look at the ministry of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ as one comprehensive magisterial work of God glorifying himself and the incarnational ministry of Christ. And by the way, when I say the incarnational ministry of Christ, I mean from his conception all the way forever and ever. Because once Jesus and once the Son is conceived and takes to himself a human body and soul, he retains the human body and soul for how long? The incarnation does not end at the cross. It continues forever. Once begun, it never ends. So that's just an introduction and whatever. So let's go ahead. In the resurrection, God has announced that all of his purpose for his people has been completed in and by Christ. So what we have here is we have a man on the day of resurrection and for those next 40 days, we have a man on earth, the God-man, the risen God-man, who has in himself and by himself completed everything necessary for our salvation. He has completed the living out of the righteous life, perfectly obedient. Remember, in all things tempted such as we yet without sin, somebody remember where that verse is? Hebrews what? Hebrews whatever. And so, 
and the resurrection, what we have is God's affirmation and proclamation that in this man, I want to emphasize that preposition, in this man is now residential, resident, deposited. In this man is now deposited absolutely everything and anything that pertains to God's purpose and fulfillment in our lives. Nothing is left out. In this resurrected man is the totality and the completion and the fruition of everything that God desires to do in and for His people, beginning in Genesis 1-1 with the creation itself, and stated in Genesis 1-26, which I don't have to quote because everybody knows it. So here you have a man standing on the earth in whom is resident all of the Father's great purpose for humanity, completed in this man. Nothing else is required to be done because it all is in Christ. So who is this man who now stands upon the earth who has been given all authority in heaven and earth? What, what verse does, what verse is it? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What verse is that? Write it down. Do you know it? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What, what book of the Bible is it? Matthew. What chapter is it? 28. What verse is it? 18. We're getting close. We're getting to know a few verses of Scripture in this room. That's great. Wonderful. <laughs> and so who is this man? So let me run through a few things. I'm not going to explicate each one of them because we could do pages and pages and pages. This is just a glimpse. It's not comprehensive at all. Just a glimpse. In fact, after I wrote all this and put it down, again, the Holy Spirit reminded me of three or four more things, and I just reverently said, Lord, I, I, I just didn't, you know, I forgot to write it down. I didn't get it at that time or whatever, so could I just be okay with not putting it? Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, more things come flooding in. Who is this man who now stands upon the earth? This man, this God-man, this man in whom the Son of God and our humanity are joined together forever in glory. He is the image. I gave you a hint, Genesis 1.26. What does Genesis 1.26 say? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. He, only one man, is the image of the invisible God. Do I have that quote in there? Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. We are made in the image, but He is the image. Why? Because He's the eternal Son of God, one with the Father in complete essence and equality and with the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's the verse itself. I see what I'm doing here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the head of the body, the church, in whom, in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. That's who this man is. 
This is not just Jesus come back from the dead standing there. Hi, y'all. This is the essence of the glory of God the Father deposited and residential in a man. This is the fullness of the glory and the revelation of who God is in himself and how he is in himself, of his essential nature and of his great character. This is in, this is God himself in a man and as a man. He is the perfect man in whom there is no sin. Now you see the reference, Hebrews what? 4.15. He is the son of the Father's unique love. Remember Matthew 3.17, Jesus is at the Jordan being baptized. Jesus comes up out of the water, and what, are the, what does the Father say? Beloved son, beloved son, agapitos, weos, son of love. In the Hebrew is Jedidiah, Jedidiah. Who is Jedidiah in the, in the Old Testament? And David called his name Solomon, but Nathan, by the Holy Spirit, says God calls him what? Jedidiah, beloved of God. Th- think just for a moment. Wait, wait. Oh. This boy is born, and he's called the beloved of God. And he's born out of the union of David and Bathsheba. Do you see the power and the extent of God's forgiveness and restoration? Bringing out an adulterous and murderous relationship, a son whom God calls beloved. If there's any question in any of us as to the effect and the extent of God's forgiveness of us in Christ, if you don't get it, go back and read 2 Samuel, I think it's 12. I might be wrong there. Someone can correct me on that. Dwell on that. Look what God did. And this man became, at least in the beginning of his reign, the greatest king of glory upon the earth until another king, at least during the first part of his reign. He is the living embodiment of Isaiah 7.14. What is Isaiah 7.14? And you shall name this little baby born of a virgin, what? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. That's who this man is. He is Emmanuel. He is the man in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the man in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the man in whom we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. He is the man in whom God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He is the man in whom we are justified or made or declared, rather, not guilty. He is the man in whom we have become what? Sons of God. He is the man in whom God has called us into his, by whom God has called us into his glory. He is the man with whom we will reign forever when he returns for the saints. Amen? That's who this man is 
Now, watch. Since the resurrection is the proof that Christ has merited all of this for us and so much more, why must he ascend to the throne? If everything has been accomplished and is residentially situated in him as fulfilled, why does he have to ascend? Why can't he just stay on earth resurrected? Why the necessity of the ascension? Remember, the ascension is as necessary as the incarnation. The ascension is as necessary as the um, uh, successful, victorious temptation in the wilderness. The ascension is as necessary as the crucifixion, as the resurrection. All of these aspects of Jesus' life are equally necessary for the accomplishment of God's purpose. Why? What is the essential distinction between the resurrection and the ascension? Now, remember, everything pertaining to our life and godliness and our salvation and our future and our forgiveness, etc., where is it? It's all in that man who is standing on the earth. Do, do we understand that? Everybody got that. It's all in that man. Promise and possession, or potential and actual. It's just a couple words the Lord gave me. Promise and possession, potential and actual. How many of you have done this? You've told someone, I bought you a great present. You're going to love it. And so, if you're a normal and honest person, you have paid money to buy a present for your wife, your children, your husband, your whoever. That present in your hands belongs to whom? Yours by purchase, but to whom does it belong? By extension. To the person that you're going to give it to. So, in that present, that person has that present, but where is that present? In your hands. The good of that present, the reality of the present, is in the possession of the one who has purchased the present. When do you get the present? When does it become yours? Is it yours in actuality in experience? Or is it yours potentially? Which one? Is it by potential or experience or actual? Which one? Come on, you can speak. It's a Pentecostal church. It's yours by potential. It's yours. I bought it. It's yours. It is yours, but it's not yours until what? Until what? You get it. It's yours and it isn't yours. Does that make sense? Christ has everything that is ours when he's standing upon the earth, but it's not yet ours until the ascension. You see, God has one essential goal in the life and the ministry of the incarnation of his son. Here's God's great goal. Our union with or in Christ. Our union in with Christ. Our salvation is not God's goal. Wait a minute, that makes me uncomfortable. It's the means which God uses to do what? 
get us to the goal. The cross is not God's goal. The cross is the means of God to get us to the goal. The incarnation is not God's, I'm sorry, I can, I'm going to change that one. The incarnation is God's goal, that he would have humanity glorified, himself glorified in humanity. But God could have done that and raised Christ and had humanity in a relationship with him that met the requirements of his purpose in Genesis 1.26. But you see, God did not just want one man. He wanted a nation of people. Why bring us into unity? Because God is glorified in the Son. Remember John 13.32. The Father is glorified in the Son. Do you remember the first few verses of John 17 when Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had in the beginning? Remember that. It is about the glory of God. This whole issue is about the display and the residential, um, the residence of God's glory in humanity. God is glorified in himself. He is self-glorified. But this God of ours wants to share and to give his glory or at least to impart his glory to a people so that they may participate in the glory of God relationally. And that is done as the Son takes on our humanity. And so because God is glorified in the Son, he is therefore glorified in those who are united to the Son. And so God's great glory is set upon and is residential in the Son as to His raised and glorified humanity. Ever the union of the divine and the human. And since God's glory is deposited and residential in a glorified man, in this divine man, this God-man, therefore all of those who are in this man, who are relationally united to this man, therefore the glory of God resides in that people also. Do we, do we see the connection here? Therefore, we have to be in union with Christ. And all the ministry that Jesus accomplishes on earth is to get us to that place of the Father's purpose. Therefore, our union with Christ is the means of God's glorifying himself in his people who have been recreated in his image. We need to be recreated from the fallen to the risen man. Recreated. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, that you must be born again. You must be recreated. Regeneration. We must start all over again. That which is by natural generation must be crucified and put to death, and a new creature, a new creation, a new nature be set in your body. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Everybody knows that verse. Remember Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What? Who has blessed us with how many? Every what or all what? Spiritual blessings what? In the heavenlies in Christ. When that man stands upon the earth, Ephesians 1, 3 has been satisfied and fulfilled. 
But the question is, how do we get that experientially? All of that is ours in him positionally because that's the Father's purpose. But how do we get it? The present is in Jesus' hand, but we must get the present in order for us to begin to what? Be experiencing it. So we have to be put into Christ. We have to be placed into Christ. All that God has done for us and will do for us is the result of our union in Christ. Why has God saved you? Why? Not because you needed to be saved. Why? Everybody needs to be saved. Why does God save us? Because in eternity, and I don't know how this works, God for decreed, foreordained, foreknew us in his Son. God knew every single one of us personally, relationally, not apart from his Son, but in his Son before the creation of the universe ever occurred. Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. Do you remember that? He knew us. For the word foreknowledge has to do with a relational knowledge. Now, some believe, and it has an aspect of this, that God knew what we were to do. Therefore, he saved us. Well, of course not. He knew what we were to do because he knew us. How many of you know your children so well you know what they're going to do? Come on. How many of you know that? You say this, watch this, because I'll tell you what he's going to do. I know what he's going to say. How many of you know? So what causes you to know what he said, what he would do? Because you know him. Now, God is greater than that because he actually does know every aspect of everything. But it's a relational term. How do we know that? Because of 1 Peter 1.20. He knew, foreknew Christ. He foreknew Christ. So it doesn't mean that the Son of God has been accepted by God because of what Jesus did, it's a relational term. The Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father from all eternity. Now, they know one another in a living and vibrant way. We won't come into this knowledge until we are born into the kingdom of God, until we are placed into union with Christ. But it all has to do with God's great foreknowledge or decree or decision, if you would, before the foundation of the world, that every one of us, when Genesis 1-1 opens, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he had each one of us in his mind as the object of that creational glory to be set in us in his Son. Do you believe that? Yes. See, God... I don't, how does this happen that he made a decision in a time frame when there wasn't even any time because God creates time? It wasn't an eternity because when God creates time, eternity is created. And so God exists outside of time and eternity. There is no eternity in God. I know he's called the eternal God, but that's a euphemism for us to understand something about God. He's here a long time. God's older than I am. I know that startles you. You see, God's goal has always been one goal. What is that? Our union with Christ. So this is the purpose of the incarnation. 
This is why the Son of God became a man. So that in his glorified humanity, the Father's creative purpose is fulfilled. Genesis 1.26 is fulfilled on the day of resurrection. It's fulfilled. But Jesus must ascend into the, to the throne of God to make it fulfilled in us, not as to its, if you would, potential or possession or decision or uh, reality in God, but to make it real in us and for us personally. God, that God sent his son into the world to reclaim his purpose to have a people in whom his glory will be manifested. And this is the purpose of the atonement and the accomplished purpose of Jesus. He prayed for this in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Well, wait a minute. The Son has always been glorified in the Father. The Father has always been glorified in the Son. But Jesus, is, Jesus or Christ is speaking as to his humanity. Glorify this humanity with the same glory that we have had before the creation was. Verse 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so the Son of God is asking that he now, as this God-man, be glorified. He doesn't have to ask it as to his own essential deity because he is the glory of God. He is the glory of God the Son, the glory of God the Father the glory of God, the Holy Spirit. The glory of God is possessed by each person of the Trinity totally and completely, but yet not by one and not the others, but by all three together. So Jesus is talking about this incarnational reality that now as you have joined me and humanity together, glorify this relationship, this union So in the fleshly body of Christ being raised from the dead, remember he rose what? Flesh and bone. We believe no blood. No blood in the body of Jesus raised. That threw a lot off. There is now upon the earth a man in whom the glory of God now dwells. See who this man is. This means that in Christ, God has relationally Notice I keep saying relationally and not ontologically. Ontologically means we become part of the personhood of God. We become deified in ourselves. No. We are relationally joined to Christ forever. We relationally share the glory of God. This is not an ontological thing where we become gods. It's not that kind of a thing. It's relationship not ontology, having to do with a person's being, a, a personhood. This means that Christ, that in Christ God has relationally embraced the humanity of his son. And in embracing the humanity of his son, God has embraced us as to his glory. But you see, God wants a nation. He just doesn't want one man, as I said. Listen to these verses. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why does God say that? Genesis 22.18, when the Lord is talking about Abraham, in your seed, 
He's telling Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So God is talking about a whole lot of folks. God is a family God. God is a relational being. Habakkuk 2.24, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So now that Christ has been risen from the dead and has been given all authority in heaven and earth, why must he ascend to the throne to take a seat at the right hand? In order to implement God's purpose in and for his people. Is the, should the ascension be made more of by the church? How many of you think so now? Without the ascension, we'd remain dead in our sins, and there'd be a raised man on the earth. We'd still be dead in our sins. And next week, we're going to start talking about why, what does this man do in his three role of king and prophet and priest, but we'll talk about that next week. This means that all that Christ has accomplished for us in this life, in his life and in his death and his resurrection, are not ours until the ascension. They are ours potentially in the purpose of God, but not ours actually as to our own possession of it. Therefore, Ephesians 1.3 is not ours unless what? Christ ascends. Romans 8.1, what does that say? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's not ours until when? The ascension. Romans 5.1 Having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. It's not ours until when? The ascension. And you go on and on and on. Every single promise is ours potentially, but is not ours actually until when? When, class? The ascension. The ascension that this man must go and sit and rule and reign on the, authority, on the throne of God. That has to happen. He has to put the whole accomplished work into motion, if you would, in his people. So what happened in the ascension of Christ? In being taken up to heaven. Remember Luke, the angels, you know, and they were watching. He was taken up to heaven. In being taken up to heaven, Christ will take his seat at the right hand of the Father to implement God's eternal plan through his triune role as king, as prophet, and as priest. So I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. We're not deprecating or putting down the celebration of Christmas, the celebration of pa uh, Passover. What is it? Palm Sunday. We're not deprecating the celebration of Easter. We're not deprecating or putting down any of that. What we are warning against and arguing for is let us not get stuck in any of these categories, but let us see the entire incarnational life of the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ be one comprehensive work that absolutely every aspect is intricately and forever connected and is needed and is of equal value as every other aspect. And certainly we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate Easter and we celebrate the resurrection. Absolutely. 
But let us not make of one or any of these activities something more important in our minds as anything. So I know how you think. Yeah, but if it weren't for the cross, yeah, you're right. But if it weren't for the resurrection, you're still right. But if it weren't for the incarnation itself, you're right. And if it weren't for the creation in Genesis 1-1, what? We're right. Do we get it? So let's make sure that we celebrate the life of God's glory in Christ, in our union with Christ, which he brings about having desired it and decided it before the foundation of the world. He brings about through the ascension. Let us make sure that our lives manifest and proclaim the greatness of everything our God has done. Amen? So next week we'll talk about the rule and reign of Christ as the glorified King who is the God-man. Thank you for being here.